morning. Um, it's always interesting to me, uh, at least from my own experience, if you were to walk out this front door and just ask the next 40 people that you saw um, if they thought they were going to go to heaven or hell when they died. A couple of them might say, ah, I don't believe in either. Um, you might find one or two that would say, maybe hell. But the vast majority of people uh, are going to say, heaven. Of course I'm going to heaven. I mean, why wouldn't I? What are you implying, right? Um, almost everyone you talk to believes that they're going to go to heaven. And let's just be honest, we do too, right? Um, that's our assumption. And yet the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 13, um, Jesus makes this shocking statement. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That's shocking. Jesus talks about life. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about heaven. When Jesus talks about destruction, um, much as we just like to kind of focus on the the, the light and fluffy sheep-hugging Jesus. Um, no one in the Bible actually talks about hell more often than Jesus. Uh, that's what he's talking about here. And so if we were to survey North America, at least like 90% of people would say, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven. And Jesus says, no, the, the gate is narrow. The way is hard. There are few who find it. Not most, few. So why the disparity? Why such a big difference between public opinion and what Jesus says? Um, heard a guy say this the other day. made sense to me. He says, I have a personal rule. Um, when someone raises from the dead, I believe them. Um, Jesus has some authority on this topic. Uh, if it comes down to a, a public vote or public opinion versus what Jesus says, I'm going with Jesus every time, every day of the week. Jesus says... It's narrow. It's hard. There are few who find it. Not the majority. And so the question then needs to be asked, which road are you on? And how would you know? Right? Sure, we would all say, I, I, I think I'm going to heaven, but how do you know you're not one of those who is just self-deceived, kind of whimsically skipping down this easy way to destruction? It's obvious that our own self-assessment is not reliable, or it would match with Jesus' assessment. Um, so sure, we're going to say, I think I'm going to heaven, but what, what does the Bible say? What does Jesus say? And uh, how would you know? How would we know for sure? Well, if you're going to get into your car and, and drive down the road, how do you know where you're going? Well, there's these beautiful road signs, right? If you were to head out to the east, you'd see this way to Calgary. This way to Red Deer. If you're to head out to the west, you'd see 30 kilometers to Sundry. I don't know why you're going that way, um, but there'd be road signs. Shows you which way you're going. And uh, what about this road that Jesus is talking about? The road to heaven, the road to destruction. Uh, are there road signs along the way? How do you know which road you're on? Well, um, we've been working our way through the book of James, uh, verse by verse, as we do. And uh, as we come to James chapter 4 this morning, verses 6 to 10, um, 
That's actually exactly what James is laying out for us. These are the, the signs along the road to heaven. So turn, turn with me there in your Bibles, James chapter 4. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, there should be one in the back of the pew in front of you there somewhere. Um, those have been nicely quarantined for you. And uh, if, if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, take this one. We want you to have it. It's our gift to you. Um, we're thrilled to have those uh, going home from here. So uh, James chapter 4, let me, uh, let me pray before we read it. Father, thank you for your word. God, we don't trust ourselves. We shouldn't trust ourselves. We trust you. We want to hear from you this morning. So God, would you open our eyes to see your truth? Lord, would you um, speak, speak by your Holy Spirit to our hearts. Reveal yourself to us as we look into your word. God, that we might see your truth in fresh and beautiful ways, that our hearts might be awakened um, to know you, to love you. Lord, that we might have confidence, um, not in ourselves, but in your grace, to know that we are uh, following you rightly, that we are among those who are on that narrow path, that on that day of our death and our judgment, that we will stand before you uh, and, and see your grace. Lord, uh, again, by your spirit, cut to our hearts. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. So before we jump into verses 6 to 10, um, if you were here last week, you know this is, this is kind of part two, right? This is the second part of a, of a larger section. Um, verses 1 to 5 uh, of chapter 4 that we looked at last week, we kind of need to recap that and, uh, and build that foundation. Um, you remember it starts with a pretty sharp indictment. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do not ask, or you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your passions. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God, that, that's, a, that's sharp. That, that hurts. Um, pointed. James is, is pushing us on this idea that, that it's a love for the world in us. Anyone, uh, anyone have conflict in their life? Anyone have uh, quarrels? James says that that's born out of a, a love for this world, a misplaced love. Because we, we value and we prioritize the things of the world rather than the things of God. And they're vastly different. That love for the world uh, is actually the first road sign here. Um, that's the first thing that we need to see. That's point one. Uh, that's the road to destruction. Kids, you keeping up? That's the road to destruction. Now... It's not wrong for Christians to, to take that passage as a, as a dedicated follower of Jesus, someone who is deliberately, intentionally walking that narrow road to life to look at these verses and say, um, how am I affected by that love for the world? Has that crept into my life in some way? Am, am, I, am I swayed by that and I need to kind of um, assess myself? That's perfectly legitimate, but, but that's not primarily what James is getting at here. Verses 1 to 5 
um, are primarily to show that this love for the world is the road to destruction. He's not addressing believers here in these passages. You'll notice he's switched. He's all through this book. He's been talking to brothers and brothers and sisters and and beloved. and, And now he's addressing adulterers, sinners, the double-minded. Um, because if this is true in them, um, they're on that road to destruction. Culturally speaking, that's probably the most shocking thing uh, about Jesus' statement that we read off the bat. Um, but before we can even get to his main point that, that the, the road to life is narrow and there's few that are on it, we have to first deal with that basic assumption that there even is a road to destruction, right? Not popular in our world today. Um, all through the Bible, but not popular. Verses 1 to 3, here in chapter 4, a little probing. James talks about these desires that rage within us. We, we want things and we don't get them, and, and there's things that we desire and don't have, and so we fight and quarrel, and he says even murder. I, I don't think he's speaking literally. I think that's metaphorical. That's talking about how we attack one another um, over this desire that we have for things that we don't get. Our hearts are focused on worldly desires. Maybe it's desire for respect, the desire to be honored, my, my rights, the desire to have control, the desire to be loved. Possibly it's a desire for more, more physical things, the desire for just a little more money. I'll do whatever I have to do, or comfort, or, or some physical pleasure, or substance. It's our worldly satisfaction. And so James then pushes even a little further. Um, Even their prayers, when they do pray, you'll notice these people often don't pray because prayer doesn't get them down the road that they're going. It doesn't achieve that end. But even when they do pray, they pray only for self-serving purposes. They pray that that they might spend it on their pleasures. James is warning, don't, don't love this worldly system. Don't value the things that this world values. And this is not a small thing. Love for this world makes you an enemy of God. Love for this world makes you an enemy of God. This close friendship, this identifying and finding kind of my reality and my comfort in in this world, this worldly system, makes you like an adulterous wife against God. Someone who's betrayed him, who stabbed him in the back left him behind and and run off with the world. Let's just pause there. God has enemies. That's a terrifying thought. There are people in this world whom God created, whom he counts as his enemies. I don't like having enemies. But but who that enemy is changes everything, right? Right? I mean, if a, if a, if a five-year-old kid were to tell me that I was his enemy, I'd be like, okay, I'll, I'll get over that, right? I'm going to be all right. If it's a full-grown man, I'm a little more concerned. That makes me uncomfortable. What if it's a king with an army? Now my life has changed, right? Now I'm going into hiding. That's going to affect my life in a big way. What if that enemy is God himself? That's terrifying. That reality is, is, is the worst thing that ever could be, to be an enemy of God Almighty. Jesus said this about Judas, who, who betrayed him, sent him to the cross, betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. 
There it is, love for the world. Jesus said to him, uh, or about him, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It would be better for him if he had never existed at all. Hebrews 10, 30, 31, speaking of God, it says this, For we know him, we know God, who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's terrifying. What could be worse? Why is it such a big deal? Why does it matter so much to God if we are friends with the world? Well, here's the backstory. God created this world. It's his, right? He made it from nothing. He can do as he pleases with it. He created us. Not because he needed anything. By definition, God has no need. There's nothing lacking in him that he was trying to gain or fill up. He created as this overflow of his glory, the overflow of the magnificence of who he is, and as a display of his glory. And we as humans, we, we show God's glory as we love him and worship him. Right? Our love for him, our worship of him is what, what puts his glory on, on grand display. That's what we were created for. That is the purpose of life. Right? You're wondering what the meaning of life is? That's it. That you would glorify God by loving him and worshiping him. And yet we as humanity, from as far back as Adam and Eve, turned from that sacred vocation. We went running after the things of the world. We loved and worshipped worldly things rather than the creator himself. We believed that it would be better um, to disobey God than to obey him. We believe there was more to be gained by turning our back on him than turning to him. That's, that's what we do every time we sin. I believe disobedience is better than obedience. You see why James uses this accusation of adultery. We were created for this sacred, monogamous relationship with God to worship him and love him and in turn find our joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in him in this perfect relationship. And we abandoned that. We left it behind. Trying to find our own joy and our own fulfillment in the things of this world. We, we look for joy in our own status, our own self-importance making our own decisions of what is right and wrong. I'm the, the one who makes those decisions, right? We pursue the pleasures of this world. We go running after false gods and, and made-up religions instead of pursuing the one true God who made us. It's spiritual adultery. It's, it's this cosmic treason against the God who created us. To love the world is to sin against God. That's the road to destruction. And we're all born on that road. That's, that's who we are from birth, right? We are born as the center of our own universe, self-serving, worldly focused. We all walk that road willingly. And just to kind of fill out that picture a little bit, understanding that road a little better. I want to just skip ahead. I know we're kind of getting the cart ahead of the horse. Um, but, but if we look at verses 6 to 10, um, these are the, the road signs to heaven. We'll unpack these in a minute. But, but for right now, we can just assume this is the opposite, right? If those are the road signs to, to heaven, what are the signs along the road to destruction? Um, it's the opposite. These people, these adulterers against God, here's what they look like. Verse 6 
they're not humble. They're proud and arrogant before God. They don't submit to him and, and bow to his will. They demand, I, I will choose my own way. I will do what I believe is right. Verse 8, they don't draw near to God. They, they push him away. They don't cleanse their hands and purify their hearts. Their hands are stained with sin and they, they love it or they don't even see it. It doesn't bother them. Verse 9, they're, they're not wretched and mourning and weeping over their sin because of their adultery against God and, and brokenness. They rejoice in it. They celebrate it. This is who I am, right? This is my sin. Who dares tell me it's wrong? This is my identity. The opposite of verse 10. Those who humble themselves before the Lord will be exalted. Those who are proud and arrogant before the Lord will be crushed. God created us for the display of his glory. And listen, his glory will be displayed in us either way. He will display his glory in acting towards some with their everlasting, overflowing joy and happiness in him for eternity, or he will display his glory in acting toward others in an equal but opposite way, the everlasting torment and weeping and misery of those who have turned from him outside of his presence. Let's just be clear. That's what we deserve, every one of us, myself the foremost. Our sin, our rebellion against God, this, this spiritual adultery puts us squarely on this road to destruction. We all rightly deserve hell. It's the proper display of the glory of God toward our treasonous adultery, our love for this world over him. That, that's the road to destruction. And the only reason our culture is so confident that we deserve less or that, that we deserve heaven is actually the very pride and arrogance that proves the opposite. And it's only once we've properly understood the guilt of mankind and that road to destruction um, that we can then be appropriately shocked at what comes next. This should not be expected. This is mind-blowing, and it's the reality of grace. Reality of grace. Look at verse 6. He lays down this, this damning accusation. You adulterous people. Your friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Do you suppose that God says with, with no purpose that he, he yearns jealously over the spirit dwells within us? He's, he's, he, he won't share his glory. And then verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Wow. He gives more grace. This is, this is unimaginable. God himself, who is, who is all-powerful, who rightly deserves all honor and worship and submission to him, who has been summarily rejected by his own creation, who would be fully right and honorable, would, would display his glory in destroying this world and wiping them out, chose instead to offer grace. This is so contrary um, to what we deserve. And, and, and then also 
in some strange way, even though we seem to, to arrogantly think that we all deserve to go to heaven, we at the same time so often have this, this twisted view of God. This grace, this gentle, patient, loving heart of forgiveness is central to the character of God, right? God is a gracious and forgiving God. That's who he is. One of the phrases that's used most often of the Lord throughout the Old Testament um, is a phrase that God himself gave first uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai. He descended in a cloud, and, and Exodus 34, 6 says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God saying, this is who I am. This is my character. This is my very nature. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. New Testament, 2 Corinthians 1.3. Just one example. Paul opens this letter with a statement of praise and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's who he is. That's his character, his heart toward creation, even toward adulterous sinners. It's, it's mercy, it's grace. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, the God of mercy and grace. God is a God of mercy and grace. Now we're always prone to swing to extremes. And, and we just like to paint in simple lines of black and white and, and frankly, to make caricatures that are not accurate. So we need, to, we need to hold these two together. God's mercy and grace, his tender, loving heart towards us doesn't mean that he is not also the God of justice. They, they don't cancel each other out. God is, at the same time, perfectly righteous and holy and just he is fierce towards sin and rebellion. That, that's what it means to be good, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what it means to love. If I love children, I have to hate child abusers. And the more I love children, the more I hate child abusers. Proper love and proper hate go together. And God absolutely, infinitely loves all that is good and right and pure and true, and therefore he is absolutely opposed to and in hatred toward all that is not. And yet, we so often here, I think, again, run amok. We, we see God then as vindictive, as harsh. As an abusive father off in the distance, this, this cranky God who's just waiting to smite. Um, and, and, and we see Jesus as the one like, you know, God was angry, this, this angry, violent father. And Jesus came to our rescue and protects us from that angry God. That's not it. That's not it. No, God is the architect of this great plan. God the Father and Jesus the Son in one united, loving heart planned in history past that Jesus would come to earth, would be born as a human, would bear our sins, our guilt on himself and die on the cross. And on that cross, God would pour out the wrath that we deserved on him. And so in that moment on the cross, the wrath of God being poured out on him instead of us, 
The, the love and mercy and grace of God is on full display without in any way sacrificing his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. They're both there. The work of Jesus on the cross is the overflow of the heart of God, right? We so often think of God as, as angry and disgusted with us and frustrated with us. That's not it. Ezekiel 33, 11. The Lord tells Ezekiel, say to them, say to my people, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God's crying out. I have mercy and grace. Why do you keep rejecting? Why do you keep going the other way? I, I long to forgive. It's his heart to forgive. He doesn't cover our sins begrudgingly. He doesn't accept our repentance rolling his eyes, frustrated again. He does it joyfully from the heart. So then the question at hand. We've seen the road to destruction and the reality of grace. How do we know if we're on that road to life? How do we know if we are among those who are recipients of that grace, walking in that grace and not in destruction? Well, that's point three, the road to life. The gate is narrow. The way is hard. There are few who find it. And so we ought to take great care. We ought to be so, so in, intentional here. Be sure that we're entering through that narrow gate. That's what verses 10, uh, 7 to 10 lay out for us. These, these road signs through the narrow gate and along that difficult path. Here's, here's what it looks like. He says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James lays this out. There's, there's just a beautiful network of, of literary devices here, kind of the overarching one. This is called an inclusio. Um, he he kind of sets these two phrases as, as parentheses, start and finish, to kind of enclose it. Um, verse 6 God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then he wraps it up in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So that's the, that's the heart of it. That's the overarching banner. That's the big, over the top of the road, big flashing green road sign that says, this is it. The road to life is marked by humility before God. It's humility before him. And then these verses in between kind of fill out what that means. They show us, okay, so humility is this big, vague, broad term. What does that look like? What does that look like on the ground, right? Now, this is very much the same as what we talked about coming through chapter 2. Um, if someone were to ask, how can I be saved? How can I be forgiven by God and, and gain eternal life? The, the simple answer is repentance and faith, right? Repent and believe. That's... Uh, that's how Jesus' entire teaching is summed up. Mark 1.15 says that Jesus went out and began to teach uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. 
And repentance and faith um, are, are just two sides of one coin, right? They're one in the same. You, you can't turn to one thing without turning from its opposite, right? And so I can't turn to the West without turning from the East. And so in the same way, in order to trust in Christ, you have to turn from sin to turn to him. And, and so that these two are inseparable. They're, they're really one in the same action. And, and that's why often we'll even simplify all the more and say we're saved by faith. We're saved by faith and faith alone, by, by trusting in Jesus. And that's absolutely true, but it's also very simplistic. That's a really dense, boiled down statement. And, and so here, James is just kind of giving us that, that kind of exploded view of, okay, here are the parts of that. Here's what that looks like. Here's, here's what that means when we talk about being saved by faith. He's not contradicting it. He's just filling it out. And so under that big overarching sign of, of humility before God, there are these four detailed signs along the way. Um, the first two are about faith, and the second two uh, are focused on repentance. And so first, this, the signs of faith. Beginning in verse 7, the, the first thing he says there, it's, it's submission to God. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Faith looks like actually actively trusting him. To trust him to, is to submit to him. If we really believe that he is who he says he is, if we trust him in that and that, that we are who we, he says we are, um, then we act like it. Think again about the Garden of Eden, that, that forbidden fruit. Right at the heart of what God was saying in that first creative creation command, I am the Lord. I'm the creator. I make the rule and you listen. Obey my one rule. Don't eat from the tree. I'll give you every good thing. Just obey my one rule. And Adam and Eve responded and said, no thanks. We'd like to make the rules, actually. We'd like to be in charge. We don't want to submit to you. We, we want to be the ones who choose what is good and right. We'll go our own way. Thank you very much. It's the road to destruction. This is undoing that. Submit to God. The word used here in, in the Greek uh, means to put in order underneath. And, and it's not a passive verb. It's an active verb. Okay? So think about it in, in, a, in, a, in a positive way. This is enlisting yourself under God's authority. Like one would enlist in the army, fall in line with him. Um, like a good soldier would fall in line under his commanding officer. I want to know his commands. I want to follow his commands. You speak, I listen. You say jump, I say how high. Um, let's go. So we fall in line with God. Faith is active obedience to God. The implications of that are huge, right? Like, I mean, that seems like a simple thing, but that's, that's massive. This is to say, I'm no longer the boss. I'm no longer in charge of my own life. I don't make the rules. I'm giving up that control of my life that I so arrogantly usurped. Um, I'm not the one who gets to say, I think this is good and I think this is bad. I'm looking to what God says. I'm submitting to him. I'm no longer calling the shots here. I put myself under God's authority. I just do what he says. Faith is submission to God. But secondly... The second road sign along the way is, is love for God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. James says that faith is resisting the devil and drawing near to God. And again, you can see kind of the the two sides of the coin happening there again. Um, This is about abandoning friendship with the world, breaking that partnership um, with Satan and disobedience against God, leaving that behind, that self-focused life, and and drawing near to God. And and that that picture of drawing near is, is so rich. Faith is not just mechanical. Right? It's not just about doing the right thing, submitting to God. It's not just that I, you know, I set my alarm for 6 o'clock and I read my Bible for 10 minutes and I say you know, this prayer um, and, and, I, and I jump through these hoops. No, no, that's not it. That's not faith. Faith isn't a, a regiment. It is obedience, submission, but it's also drawing near to him. It's relational. It's personal. By his grace, God calls us to draw near to him. This is restoring that relationship that we destroyed by our adultery. We once ran after the world and loved the things of the world, and God says, leave that behind and run after me instead. Love me instead. Draw near to me. Faith is about the heart. It's about our hope, our love, our affection for him. It's restoring this broken relationship. God says, turn your love back toward me. Those on the road to life love God. I fear there are many who do the church thing, right? I go to church, I give my 10%, I, you know, check all the boxes, and God says, but do you love me? You're drawn near to me in any meaningful way? That's what faith is. And don't miss this amazing promise. God says to his adulterous people, the people who betrayed him so deeply, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. God promises his own love in return. This is is the prodigal son again, who after taking his father's money, right? Remember this story? He basically says, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me my part of the inheritance and I'm out of here. He runs away and he wastes all of it on on drugs and and gambling and prostitutes. And he finds himself destitute and broke and and completely homeless, hopeless and starving. Filthy and ashamed. He's eating the food from the pig's trough. This once wealthy man's son. What does he do? he, He turns back to his father. But just a little hesitantly, cautiously. He tells himself, maybe my father will let me be like one of the slaves in his house. Maybe he'll give me some of the scraps off his table. And the son ashamedly, hesitantly turns back toward the father, not sure what to expect, slowly, timidly walking that road toward home. What does the father do? says the father saw him from far off. What does that mean? It means the father was waiting, looking, longing for that day when his son would return. He's been gazing out on the horizon, eager for this day. And without a second's hesitation, the father runs down the road. He picks up his, his heavy royal robes and he runs down the road toward his son and he throws his arms around his neck and he puts a ring on his fingers and a robe on his back and he says, my son is home. He throws a party to, to celebrate. 
The son turns toward the father, hesitantly, and the father pulls him all the way in, receives him back into his home, into his family. God is saying, turn to me and I will draw near to you. You will find that you're not just reluctantly allowed in, but joyfully, completely welcomed home. God will draw near to you. So this is the picture of faith. Faith submits to God, and faith has this heart of love toward God. And then James gives us these signs of repentance. What, is, what does it mean to turn from sin? First sign there to, to leave sin, um, the middle of verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, there's some subtle accusations in there, isn't there? That, that stings a little bit. Sinners? You have to understand, when, when Scripture uses this term, it, it's not like the way we often use it today. We all sin, and, and so we're, you know, we're not wrong to say we're all sinners. But this phrase used this way in Scripture, you'll find it's used in a particularly negative sense. Like when Jesus was on earth and how frequently he was accused by the Pharisees. What did he do? He was eating with those tax collectors and sinners. And they're not talking about imperfect people. They're not talking about people who have made mistakes. They're talking about people who are defined by their sinful life. They were the worst of the worst. They were the, the thieves and the prostitutes, the wicked, crooked people of the world, the bottom of society. And then the double-minded. This is a word that, uh, that James used back in chapter 1, verse 8. Um, this is the person who doubts God. James says this person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Um, this is that spiritual adulterer. He, he's kind of half interested in God and, and, and half dedicated to the world and he kind of comes and goes. He's uncommitted. Through James, God is setting up this call to the worst of the worst, to the, to the sinners and the double-minded. And he says, wash your hands, purify your hearts. The hands represent our outward deeds, the acts of the body, the external sins that we commit that defile us. James says repentance is seen in clean hands. You, you leave sin, you're, you're stopping sin. You're not going to carry on down that path. The road to life is, is marked by those who, who stop doing those sinful things. And then purify your double-minded heart, literally double-souled. The idea is that the heart is divided and, and you need to bring it into unity, right? You've had two hearts after two different things and you need to pick one. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't live with a heart that is half for God and half for the world. Repentance is seen in a pure heart. So clean hands and a pure heart, a heart that's turned from sin, a heart that doesn't spend its time thinking about, longing for, planning for sin, but a heart that, that, that seeks to love the Lord. Repentance means leave sin with your hands and with your heart, walk away. And then just like faith, 
works itself out both in kind of the actions and the affections, the hands and the heart, um, the, the deeds and love, so does repentance. First, repentance means leave sin. And then secondly, um, he says repentance means grieve sin. It shows itself in this brokenheartedness over sin. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What a miserable verse. Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Are, are followers of Jesus really this dismal and depressed and somber people? Do, do they just go around crying and wailing all the time? No. No, not at all. In fact, we're commanded to rejoice always. We're told the joy of the Lord is our strength, and we're promised that if we, if we follow Christ, our joy will be full. So what's all this weeping about? Well, this is the proper response to our sinfulness. If you want to know if you're on the path to, to life or death, how does your heart respond to seeing your sinfulness? How do you respond to those things in your own life? Do you laugh? Do you shrug it off? That's not a big deal. I'm not as bad as that next guy, right? I'm not as bad as that guy down the road. Do you even think about it? Repentance takes sin seriously. Those who are on that narrow path, that road to life, are those who respond to their sin with a brokenness and grief. They're not perfect. None, none of us is perfect, but, but that's not our heart. That's not our desire. Our desire is to, to love and to serve the Lord. And so when we falter, when we sin, it's, it's crushing. That's not what I desire. They feel the weight of their sin is a tragedy because it is. 2 Corinthians 7.10 makes this helpful distinction. Um, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. There are those with a worldly grief, those who kind of feel bad about getting caught, feel bad that they you know, aren't as good a person as they wish they were, but they kind of carry on. It's just a shallow, hollow grief. It doesn't bring about life change. And Paul says that's a, that's a shallow grief. That's, that's worldly grief. It leads to death. But then there's this weeping and mourning, this serious sorrow and hatred for sin that, that produces repentance, that brings life transformation, that, that leads down that path of, of life. The Lord said this to the prophet Joel, Joel 2, 12, 13. He says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, this draw near to me. With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Right. So back in the, that was a, it was a sign of, of grief in the olden days. You you would tear your clothes. You're so distraught, and and God is saying, don't just tear your clothes. Don't just make this outward sign. Tear your heart. I want to know you're broken inside. I want to know your heart is grieving over this. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Now listen, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. True repentance leaves sin, stop doing it, grieve sin, let that weight of it rest on you, feel that, be sorrowful over it. 
It ought to break us. Are you on this road? Don't take that for granted. Is this your life? Do these things match up? Again, Jesus warned the gate is narrow and the road is hard and there are few who find it. Are you sure? You're not just one of the many who assumes like thousands of others that they're walking down the road to life. They trot easily down that path without a care in the world, happy and confident until that day of judgment when they'll stand before the Lord and sadly will be so unpleasantly surprised. Don't take that for granted. Test yourself. Push on that. Is this me? Are these signs along the road of my life? Is this the road I'm traveling down? Do I see it clearly in me? And if not, this is not you, or maybe you look and go, I'm just not sure. It's not clear. Look at verse 10. Humble yourself. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Remember, he gives more grace and more grace and more grace. He is eager and willing to forgive. And you say, well, I've gone too far. I've neglected him too long. I've sinned too deeply. It's, it's too late for me. No, no, it's not. Luke 5, 32, Jesus says this, I've not come to call the righteous, those who think they're righteous, right? Those who are arrogant and doing their own thing. I said, Jesus, I didn't come for the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Sinners. The worst of the worst. That's who Jesus spent his time with. That's who he made a, a beeline for. Sinners to repentance, you and me. And he continues to call out today. As he did to Israel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked should turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil way, why would you die? Do you trust him? Do you find your hope and joy in him? Do you submit to him and love him? Are you willing to turn from sin, to leave it behind, to be broken over it and come to him for grace? He delights to forgive. Let's pray. Father, your goodness is overwhelming. Lord, we are a sinful people. We are an adulterous people who have lived lives in love of this world, turning from you. And you would have been right to, to crush us, to put an end to this world in that first moment of sin, and yet you are gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who are thinking, I don't know if that's me, or I know for sure that's not me. God, would you open their hearts? Lord, that they might see you and your glory and your beauty and the wonder of your grace that they might come to you in repentance and faith and know um, the joy that is in you, the joy that is full, that is far surpassing anything this world has to offer. Lord, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you that you are a God who delights to forgive who promises that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. God, may we see that uh, ever more clearly today. Lord, we love you. 
We praise you for your grace towards us in Jesus' name.